Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of 1 Peter. And before we jump into the content on this recording, just wanted to highlight that in case you missed it, last week we announced that the Study Hub is now up and operational. We're continuing to add more tools and more resources, but if you want some premium content, some bonus content to go along with the audio, the place to get that is inside the Study Hub. And not only is that a benefit to you, but it's also a way that you can help support the ministry of the listener's commentary and the Bible in life and all we're doing to teach the Bible in down-to-earth, everyday language. So if that sounds like something that would be helpful to you, I just invite you to swing on over to the listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com. And in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see Study Hub. Click sign up and you can check out a little bit more about the Study Hub there and then uh, go from there. So, all right, in this session, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And in the preceding paragraph, the paragraph right at the end of chapter 3, Peter has urged Christians to be zealous for doing good. And Peter says, when you do that, Typically, that means people are less likely to attack you, but not always. So, do good, and if you suffer as a Christian, set apart Christ as holy. He's your refuge. He's your hope. In fact, he himself suffered too, and he's been victorious over the forces of evil, and those forces of evil are now subjugated under his feet. So, trust him. And don't be afraid of others. So that's really the big point that Peter made in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Well, chapter 4, where we pick up with this session, continues this theme and calls Christians to align themselves with the will of God, to be prepared to live for it and to suffer for it if necessary. So in short, the paragraph we're going to look at here on this recording says, based on the fact that Christ also suffered and now reigns victorious, you too arm yourself to suffer for and live out the will of God. So chapter 4 begins like this. It says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, and before we go any further, just take note of the word therefore that begins this verse. It means it's directly tied to the end of chapter 3, and that's why we had all that little context we just set up at the beginning of this. And what this this section is going to do is draw out a key implication from what Peter said at the end of chapter 3. And that's the reason we tried to give that summary to set this up. So, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human lusts, but for the will of God. Now, notice at the very beginning how Peter says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, and he's really tying us back into chapter three. And so even though there's some tricky stuff, At the end of chapter 3, this phrase, Christ suffered in the flesh, really gets at, at least in Peter's mind, the main thing he wants us to draw out of what he said about Jesus there at the end of chapter 3. So Christ suffered and, by extension, reigns victorious over the spiritual powers because that's the way chapter 3 ended. So in view of that fact, arm yourselves with the same purpose. And the word purpose here literally is mind. So it's the idea of having the same mindset. 
arm yourself with this mindset. And that phrase, arm yourself, is really just generally prepare yourself for. It was regularly used in a military context for preparing for battle, preparing for war. And so it's that idea of prepare yourself for, but it's not just sort of like a casual laissez-faire sort of getting prepared. No, it's serious preparation. Like you got to get your head in the game. You got to take this seriously. You got to have this mindset. You got you to be prepared uh, ardently and seriously for this. And then he says that the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And it's a little difficult to know exactly what Peter means by this. I mean, ceased from sin, like which one of us has ceased from sin? Has Peter himself even ceased from sin fully and completely? And so I I think we have to listen closely to what Peter says in the following phrase in verse 2, because I think it clarifies what he has in mind here. So he says in verse 2, not living for human desires, they translate it in this version, lust, but it's just the word desires, no longer living for human desires, but for the will of God. And so the idea seems to be that we're no longer living for sin, that sin is no longer what drives us. Sin is no longer the thing for which we, uh, where we find our pleasure and our purpose and our enjoyment. Instead, we're living for the will of God. So we may occasionally stumble in sin. We may, as we're breaking the grasp of sin, still sin more often than not. But slowly but surely, as we've suffered in the flesh, the power of sin is broken in our life. And that's Peter's point is that one who has set their will so much so to live for God's will that they're willing to suffer for it, it's more likely that they'll do God's will than that they'll do the will of the flesh. Or as one scholar puts it, Craig Keener, he says, once you reckon your life as already forfeit and you co- your commitment is shown to uh, living for God by testing, well, you'll no longer live for other values. One who is truly prepared to die for Christ can also live for him. And so as we arm ourselves for the purpose of suffering for Jesus, that means we'll no longer live for mere human desires, but we will be set to live for the will of God. Peter then goes on to explain this more. He says that their old life is just that. It's their old life, and they are, or at least they ought to be, done with that old pattern of life. So look at verse 3. He says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of indecent behavior, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and wanton idolatries. When Peter says the time already passed is sufficient for you to have done these things, that phrase doesn't just mean like, yesterday and the day before, the time in the past, it it means that, but it means it sort of in a richer, deeper way. Peter uses a word that means having passed away. And it probably reflects Peter's understanding as well as the entire New Testament's understanding that now that Christ has come, uh, things in the world have changed. The old order is passing away. So with the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, God's new creation is broken into the present creation, the here and now. And so now you have two eras, two uh, ways of doing life, two 
creations basically at work in the world and overlapping in the world, the old creation and the new creation. The old creation governed by the flesh, the old creation ruled by uh, defeated spiritual powers, those rulers and authorities that Jesus triumphed over. That's the old order. And the new creation is broken into that. And it's it's dominated not by the flesh and uh, fallen spiritual powers. It's dominated by Jesus and the spirit. So there's an end to the old era and the new era now has come and they overlap. Uh, it's that old era that is still here, but is passing away. And Peter's language seems to reflect that, that the time already passed, the time that has passed away is sufficient for you. So that old era governed by uh, old spiritual powers and the flesh, well, that's passing away. The old is gone, the new has come, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And so our own personal past that was part of that old era, well, that's gone too, and it's passing away as well. And so when we were part of that old order and old era, we carried out the desire of the Gentiles, as Peter says here. And that word desire literally, um, bulema in Greek, is purpose or will. Like It's not just the same word as um, fleshly desires earlier in the passage, but here it's the purpose or the will. Like as as Gentiles and those governed by the flesh, that our purpose, our will, our goal was to follow the fallen way of life. But that was then, and that has now passed away. And then what Peter does here in verse three is he just gives sort of a sample, a list of the kinds of things that showed up when you were driven by that purpose or will of the Gentiles. Scholars typically refer to these kind of lists as either vice lists, as in this case, or when they're the positive traits, the virtue list. So here we have a vice list. Before we look at the specific things in the list, just remember these lists weren't intended to be exhaustive or all-inclusive. They were to give you the idea of these kinds of things. And so what kinds of things? Well, indecent behavior, uh, literally sensuality, living for what feels good, living for what brings you pleasure. Uh, and then he says lusts, and that's just evil desires. We typically just associate the word lust with sexual desire, and that's certainly part of it, but it's broader than that, just evil desires in general. Drunkenness, we know what that is, get that carousing is just this, it's really the idea of just partying and dinner parties, and in the ancient world, oftentimes those dinner parties were known for drunkenness and things that went along with them. He mentioned specifically drinking parties after that, and then unlawful idolatry. All sorts of temples and gods and goddesses and honoring those uh, false deities was just part of your civic duty. And so all of that that's part of the old era, well, that's been terminated by Christ. And for those who are in Christ, they've been rescued from that old era. They've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. They've been ushered into a new one, into the kingdom of God in Christ and his spirit. And so all that old stuff is done. Its day is done. And thus, you live in and you live for a new era, the new creation. And one of the things that means is, well, you and your way of life don't make sense to those who are still part of the old era that's passing away. And so look what he says in verse four. He says, in all of this, they are surprised that you don't run with them in the same excesses of debauchery and they slander you. Because 
the Christians in Peter's original context as well as today, because Christians no longer join them, run with them, or hang out with them in their fallen, sinful way of life, they are surprised and they slander or they speak against them. That's the point of verse 4. And so, because your way of life is different from their way of life, even though oftentimes when you do good, you're not going to be attacked, they, you're just a misfit. They don't understand you, particularly those who are really opposed to God and to good. And so if you don't join them in their same excesses of debauchery, they look at you as odd and weird and they slander you. But, verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In other words, but God will hold them accountable. God's ultimately the judge of all people, and he will vindicate his people and hold those who attack or slander his people accountable. Notice God is described as the one who is ready to judge the living and dead. This is part of who God is. He is the judge of all the earth, as Abraham says in Genesis 18. That's just who God is. He is the one that holds all the earth accountable. He'll sort out right from wrong, and he'll, he'll set all things right in due time. That's who he is. And God sets things straight as the judge of the universe, and so he's going to hold all people accountable. One implication of that for us as God's people when we're attacked, when we're slandered is we don't need to feel like it's our job to set things right. We don't need to feel like it's our job to defend ourselves or even defend God. We can let God be our defender, God be our judge, know that God will be the one who will set things right, and he'll vindicate his people who are faithful to him. And so we can calmly and patiently deal with it and continue just to do good, as Peter has called us to, knowing who God is. And then verse 6 in this section adds to this thought of God being the one who's ready to judge the living and dead. But what he says is just a little bit confusing. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as people, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So it's connected to verse 5 clearly because it begins with the word for or because. It's saying that because God is ready to judge the living and the dead, well, the good news has been preached to those who are dead. What does that mean? Like, there's clearly in Peter's mind a logical connection, but what does it mean? Well, here's the two options. Option number one is that Jesus preached the gospel to dead humans, presumably after his death or after his resurrection. So that's, that's one option. Or option two, uh, the gospel was preached to people who have now since died, people who were alive when they heard the gospel, but are now dead. Those are the two options. And Peter appears to be connecting what happens to these people, seemingly Christians who heard and received the gospel, to what happened to Jesus in chapter 3, verse 18. In chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says that Jesus was condemned to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
And he uses that same phrasing here for those who heard the gospel. So we need to recall what we said that phrase means there in 3.18 to understand what it means here. And there in 3.18, we said it's clearly referring to Jesus' death and resurrection. And however we understand the exact little bit made alive in the spirit there in 3.18, it's clearly referring to his resurrection. And so we took it to say made made alive in the spirit, meaning resurrection state of spiritual life, right? Like he was killed in the flesh as a human being, made alive spiritually by virtue of the resurrection. And I think that's what's going on here. So in parallel with that verse, this verse likely refers to physical death and then the resurrection state for those who have heard and received the gospel. They've been put to death in the flesh, or they have died in the flesh, but they're made alive in the spirit. That is, they're experiencing or will experience resurrection life. So I think the second option is the preferable one in context. That is, I think we're talking about people who heard and received the gospel during their life and have now since died. Maybe some have even died because of their faith in Jesus. Not sure, but maybe that's the case. And they will be given spiritual resurrection life when the resurrection happens. So here, people are judged as humans in the flesh and have died, but by God, they are judged and now are going to be made alive in the spirit. And that seems to be the connection with chapter 3, verse 18. And one other little note that we need to just make sure we make clear, this translation reads that they may live or be made alive in the spirit according to the will of God. But literally, the Greek simply says that they may be made alive in the spirit according to God, not the will of God. That that will of is uh, it's supplied there, but I don't think we need to, to supply that phrase. Uh, the idea of according to God probably in context has to do with this idea of by God's judgment, by God's assessment, um, that uh, they died as human beings, but according to God's judgment, they're going to be made alive by the Spirit. And so what seems perfectly clear here in verse 6 is that uh, their death is a mark of their humanness, their fleshiness. Humans die. Uh, Whether there's more to it than that or not, that much seems clear. And the whole context, we must remember, is that is this idea of suffering as a Christian. So like Jesus in the preceding paragraph at the end of chapter 3, death is not the end. According to God, there is life, resurrection life. There is being made alive in the Spirit. And that seems to be the point. And so, as we live this life in this world, even if we are attacked for doing the will of God, um, we will be vindicated in the end by God and we will be resurrected with Christ. And so whenever death, death comes, it's not the final word. There's more to the story, more to our story than that. We will be made alive according to God in Christ with the Spirit. And so, in view of this, may we heed the exhortation of this text, arm ourselves with the mindset to do good, and if necessary, to suffer with and for Christ. May we resolve to die with him, 
and let our past life die in the past, in the old era that's passing away, not worrying about what people think or say about us, but only concerned about God's assessment of us. His evaluation is the only judgment that matters. His assessment is the only opinion that matters. May we arm ourselves with the purpose of living completely for the will of God, regardless of what comes our way.